This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Feisty, fearless, and fair. She's an Emmy-winning journalist from the White House to war zones, telling all sides of the story. This is the Rita Cosby Show. Fourth of July, everybody. This is Rita Cosby. Thanks for joining us for this very special episode of the Rita Cosby Show. Tonight, we are highlighting some of the many heroes we have honored on the show over the past year. We're kicking things off with an interview that I conducted a few weeks ago with an amazing veteran, Staff Sergeant Irv Locker, one of the oldest surviving D-Day veterans. We spoke to him on the anniversary of D-Day. Joining us now is great American and my dear friend, Irv Locker. Irv, it is such an honor to have you here on the anniversary of D-Day. Thank you. It's my honor to be with you and to help any betray I can. Well, you know what? It is so important that everybody remembers the incredible heroism of you and your comrades that day. Take us through, Irv, what that was like when you were storming the beach. Here you're a young guy, first wave Utah Beach. What was that yeah. like? Well, the only the only answer that I can give you on that basis of they want to know what was going through our mind. And the only thing that was going through everybody's mind is that the, the long life that we promised ourselves could be shortened very, very fast with one bullet uh, to that point. Because we went in on D-Day uh, on uh, Utah Beach, and we went in there to protect the Sherberg, air, uh, Sherberg port. Uh, now, we had 90-millimeter guns. People have no idea what that is. It's nine-and-a-half-ton guns. The barrel was 15 feet long. I could shoot at a plane 25,000 feet up into the air. It, with that, our ammunition, people have no idea. Our ammunition was three feet tall and weighed 45 pounds each shell. And I must talk about one fast thing. Uh, at that time, before computers, we had radar. Now, the radar machines could tell me the height of the plane, the speed of the plane, the direction of the plane, and how far in front of that plane I'd have to shoot in order to hit that plane. 
So that's a miracle in itself, basically. And that was new back then. That was an incredible accomplishment. Incredible. We call it a, a magnificent piece of equipment because we had the highest amount of Nazi planes shot down. My outfit did in the entire First Army. It, it was an unbelievable situation. Plus the fact that with that ammunition, our ammunition was three feet tall, each shell, three feet tall and weighed 45 pounds, each shell. Plus the fact beside wow. the plane, Rommel was going to put tanks on the beaches to keep us out. We had the ammunition, that type of gun. With that ammunition, I could go through an, a German tank like a piece of glass. So we've got credited with planes and tanks, and that's why we went in. We were the first ones to, um, after D-Day, we were the first ones entering Germany. It's a whole complete history, but it was because of the 90-millimeter guns that put us into that situation because we could shoot at planes, we could knock down tanks. Uh, and when they had our um, Americans surrounded five miles away, I could shoot five miles away and hit them and, and prevent them from annihilating our, our, our troops. And everything is in writing, and, and I didn't write it. So everything is here in history to that point. So um, it's, it's very, very authentic. And everybody, we are talking to D-Day veteran Irv Locker, who was first wave Utah Beach. You know, you talked about, of course, being part of the First Army's Seventh uh, yep. Corps. You were the one sixteenth AAA Gun Battalion. Listen, Rita, explain. AAA means anti-aircraft, anti-tank, and artillery. People don't understand what AAA means. It's anti-aircraft, anti-tank, and artillery. Because with that gun, I could shoot at planes, I could knock down tanks, and save lives with the artillery. Tell me about, first of all, how old you were, how young, really, you were when you were storming the beach, and and you had to have been nervous. I mean, it, it must have just oh, been oh, um, unbelievable. Absolutely. They took me right out of high school, drafted me. We went into uh, uh, training, but not we were not assigned. Uh, uh, I came out of New Jersey, so we, were, we went into Fort Dix, not assigned to any outfit, just uh, uniforms and guns, etc., shooting a rifle. Then we were assigned to the 160th AAA Gun Battalion. So that's the outfit I went in on Utah Beach with, and that's the unit, that's the unit we were attached, and that's the unit I stayed with with that. And the only thing that I keep saying to you and to everybody else, they keep talking about what went through your mind <laughs> landing on Utah, Utah Beach, and basically with them shooting at you and everything else, it's, it's unbelievable. And, of course, living through the, uh, the forest, Living through the Hurtgen forests, we had no toilets, no sinks, no showers. Everything had to be brought to us. And we went in originally to protect the Sherbert port because of the fact that everything had to be, everything had to be brought to us. Food, water, ammunition, medicine, clothing, everything had to be brought to us. So we had to protect that, that beach, that Sherbert beach. That's why we landed on Utah Beach at that stage. Did you realize, Irv Locker, when you were storming Utah Beach on D-Day, how pivotal of a moment that was for history? No, no, honestly, no. Uh, To be honest with you, at that particular stage of our life, we were concerned with our own life and getting onto that beach because everybody on that beach kept hollering, get off the beach. On the beach, you're a victim. Off the beach, you're a warrior. Get off the beach. Because what we had to do is they would, when we landed on that beach, they had people 
directing us so that we our big guns, our 90-millimeter guns coming in had to be directed to us. Then we were assigned a field, and we set up each who had four guns to a battery. So each, each battery had one, uh, four of these 90-millimeter guns, and there were four, there were 16 of these guns in a battalion. So when I talk about the fact of shooting down planes and tanks and artillery, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing situation. Plus the fact that people don't realize the ammunition, as I said before, was three feet tall. And we had what we call a, a, a unit on that, uh, that the bullet would explode. It's called a fuse setter. So when we shot up from the radar, radar connected to each gun by cables so we could get the height and the, the, the direction. And when we got to the height, when we shot the bullet, the bullet would explode because of this uh, explosion there and figuring that the planes would fly into all of the shells, you know what I mean, the, the shells would explode. It's amazing to hear, you know, and after, of course, you go through D-Day, then you were at the Battle of the Bulge, um, and you yep. also helped free a Holocaust camp, Garden Lagan. Yes. That, what do you want people to know, Irv Locker? It's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Man's inhumanity to man is the worst I have ever seen in my life at that Holocaust camp. I mean, it was totally brutal, totally brutal of what they did to not only the men and the women and the children. Uh, it, 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 it tore my heart out uh, with that, believe me. Uh, and then, of course, I, I, you know, we stopped at the Elbe River. I'm Jewish. The Jewish language is a derivative of German. So I went into Berlin. I went into it to try to help settle some of the little towns and stuff with it. So it was an amazing uh, situation how bad. But the Holocaust camp was the worst I have ever seen. I have pictures with my own camera. I put it into a book to show people how man's inhumanity to man, how difficult life can be because of that factor. 1,000%. I can't even imagine, Irv, you know, what you have experienced. You know, I'm here on the 78th anniversary of D-Day. What is your message, especially to young people, and what do you think is the message of D-Day? The message to me, to young people, is freedom was not free. We had to fight for that freedom and maintain that freedom, and they had to appreciate every soldier and every veteran that that could that that was there or could, who helped so that they could have a free life, and that's what I talk about and that's what I lecture about to that point that freedom is not free, and the amount of people that lost their limbs, their arms, their legs, uh, lost their lives for the same factor so that people could be free, and that's. Because people, some some people still talk about the fact that the Holocaust never happened, and and it's a ridiculous situation. But they better never tell me that because I'm little, but I carry a big gun. <laughs> so they, they better never tell me about the Holocaust. I've got actual pictures of of, of the dead people. They took a, a thousand people. They were afraid when we got toward the uh, Elbe River. They were afraid that the prisoners could identify. Uh, um, the guys who were who were in charge, so they put a thousand people into a barn, put hay and straw on the floor, put gasoline on it, and lit it, 
locked the doors. Anybody who tried to get out was machine gunned. So you can imagine what when I saw that. Uh, believe me when I tell you, I'm 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 Jewish. Uh, when I saw that, uh, the first thing I did was throw up, and, and then I sat down and cried because it was so man's inhumanity to man was so bad that I I, I couldn't handle it. So that's how bad it was, and that's what we approached, and that's what I have pictures of. So unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, Irv Locker, thank goodness you survived to tell these important messages for history so the world never forgets the sacrifice of everybody who helped with that camp to liberate it, Battle of the Bulge, and, of course, on this anniversary of D-Day, too. Thank you for everything, and you keep sharing your stories and your messages because the world needs to hear, and it's such a blessing and a gift to have you here on this anniversary. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for letting me express my myself to people so they understand what we went through so that they could be free and have what they have today. Well, we are so grateful for you, Irv Locker. Thank you and your comrades. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And as we continue now with this Rita Cosby special show, let's listen to my interview with Merchant Marine World War II veteran Charles Mills. Charles, so great to have you here on the show. Oh, it's great to be here, and it's always great to hear your voice. And And you you too, my friend. Yes, it's always good to hear your voice and always great to see your face and smile. You know, Charles, you are extraordinary. You um, were at this event tonight with your family that just loves you and has been so supportive. I want to ask you, what does it mean to you to know that you guys are finally now, decades later, getting the Congressional Gold Medal? Well, every time I think about the advantage and the fight we put up, it makes my heart swell because the fight took so long to for us to win. And without without the support of people, friends like you and others, we never would have made the game that we did. And we will always be grateful for that. That's why you will always be in our hearts. You'll always be in the station with us wherever we go, whenever we go. Well, Charles, we love you guys, and we love sharing the story with Americans of what you went through. It's the least that all of us can do to be able to give back. I want to have you tell a little bit of your story to our great listeners. And by the way, everybody, you are listening to a true American hero, 101 years old, Charles Mills, who uh, has the energy and the personality and the fire of literally, as you can hear, a 20-year-old um, and one of just the most extraordinary men I've met. And you were 17 years old. It's 1937. And you joined the Merchant Marines. Tell us, where were you stationed? Because you served for 52 years, Charles. Well, I uh, I was in high school. So I was looking for another job. I had some jobs. So I was looking for a job. And I had a relative who was a seaman. And I asked him, would uh, they give me an opportunity to work part-time? while I was going to school. And he said, I need to talk to the union and to the company. He did. And they agreed to let me work part-time. My general idea was to work part-time until I finished high school and go on to college. 
but uh, I did work part-time up until 1941 when the war came along that uh, uh, that killed the college thing. I did not get, have an opportunity to get back to college until about 47, I think it was. And uh, so I always have my thanks to the company, Lifeline, and to the ISU at that time for giving me that opportunity to work part-time to uh, gain some funds. High school kids, even then, needed extra stuff because you wanted to look good for the girls and all that. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's, that's where it got started. In 1937, I made my first trip on a, on a ship that was built and uh, for the sec for the first world war, and uh, they uh, they loaded it and we went to the West Indies. Called the Carlton Lights. Wow, you know it's a, Charles. Year. It's extraordinary to hear of where you've been, and again, fifty-two years of service that you had. What do you want people who are listening to know? about the importance of the merchant marines for people who may not be as familiar what do you want to tell them about i want, I want people to realize that half of the people in this country do not realize the value of the united states merchant marine to the economy of this country frankly everything that you wear eat smoke drink or otherwise come in on the ship and most and the, no, a small amount of those ships are manned by Americans, but everything comes in on the ship. You see the big containers? They come in with cargo from other countries to this country every day. So the contribution by the United States Merchant Marine to the economy of this country is great, and we need it. So we ask people not only to support us, to support the Jones Act, which we come up soon. You need to talk to your congressman about that. And when we come back, we will continue to pay tribute to America's heroes. You're listening to The Rita Cosby Show. This is The Rita Cosby Show. Welcome back to this special edition of The Rita Cosby Show. Last September, I spoke with three merchant mariners after attending a ceremony in their honor. It was incredible. Let's listen now to my interview with Merchant Marine World War II veteran Dave Yoho. Joining us now here on the Rita Cosby Show is a great hero from World War II, 93 years young. And he was just a teenager when he volunteered and he joined the Merchant Marines. And he has become one of the most successful speakers, one of the most successful businessmen in America. And I think one of the most extraordinary human beings that I know. And joining us now here on the show is Mr. Dave Yoho. Thanks so much for being with us, Dave. Yeah, you're welcome, I'm sure. Thanks for having me. Quid pro quo. Uh, but I mean, so, Dave, it's been an honor to get to know you and the fellow Merchant Mariners. I want to have you tell our audience, first of all, about the incredible sacrifice of the Merchant Marines in general and the vital role that they really played in World War II and so many different of the theaters in the European theater, Pacific theater, really all over the place. 
Well, well, to understand it first is to recognize we were at war. America was at war, but the battles weren't fought here. We fought on five continents, and uh, they far reaching from our shores, so we had to supply what goes with the troops. Uh, their jeeps, their tanks, there's aircraft, there's fuel, there's food, there's clothing, all the plethora of things that have to be provided to keep an army or a navy uh, at work. Well, but you know what's amazing, Dave? Um, the amount, as you're talking about all the different theaters, but um, what was it, 7 million that they took, 7 million military men during World War II, yeah. to and fro? I mean, that's an extraordinary number. Yeah, well, first of all, we put 16 million in uniform in a country that only had 130 million population. So that was 12.5% of our population. Now, we took 7 million over and brought 7 million back, but we, in addition, did 15 million tons of armaments, goods, food, clothing, 15 million tons we sent to the U.K., and to Europe to fortify our troops and our allies in that area. That was in the uh, European. In the Mediterranean, we produced another, uh, I'm going to say 8 million, 8 million tons. And in the Pacific, we're about 11 or 13 million tons. And then we supplied Russia as well. That was a separate ally, 5 million tons. Now, you think you could say the words very easily, but you think, of the amount of goods and equipment that we took to these countries. It's a phenomenon. And we had to build new ships, and we had to modernize the ships, and we had to we had to hire people to run the ships. And they didn't have... We really stripped our manhood bare. Uh, and some of our womanhood, too, the uh, women who were in the wafts, the waves, the wax, and the, the nurses, just uh, a number of sources of people who were doing jobs which freed guys to fight. So a lot of people are taking goods from hither to yon and back, and uh, and some were real tragedies, things that you never heard about. Probably will never be explained unless somebody writes a book that reveals it. Rita Cosby is on. Welcome back to this special edition of the Rita Cosby Show. Last September, I spoke with three merchant mariners after attending a ceremony in their honor. It was incredible. Let's listen now to my interview with Merchant Marine World War II veteran Dave Yoho. You were 13, right, um, when you heard about the attack in Pearl Harbor. And, Dave, well, you were 15? Yeah, yes. Yeah, and 13 then, when the war began, 13. And by the time I was 15, I made up my mind I was going to do something, and I tried to enlist in the Navy on a falsified birth certificate. But the first time I did it, they caught me. I was supposed to be shipped out, and the police showed up at my home, told my parents I was a truant and whatever. And it didn't do a, it didn't go over too well with them. But uh, I made up my mind I was going to go, and uh, and we found out about the mercenary, and I had never heard of them. I didn't know what they were. I didn't do, you know, 14 or 15. I lived in the inner city. And so uh, I thought it would be exciting. The uniform looked good. I thought the girls would like the uniform. So, uh, <laughs> and you, well, listen, you're the, any young guy, and he's looking at going into the military, he does what we call a phantasmagorical. He paints a picture in his mind of what he thinks it's going to be. It's all going to be in the colorful uniform, going into a restaurant, a bar, a dance hall, dancing with people. Walking down the street, everyone's saluting you, waving the flag, and telling you how great you are. But that's here. 
That's not there. Wherever there is, you're in the midst of doing things that are very adult. I mean, there's an, there's an instant maturation. We were kids. I don't know how you'd otherwise uh, to, uh, to give names to people who were 16, 17, 18 years of age. And there, there are a couple of them that were 14 years of age that went in in the group that were here tonight. So, uh, but there was a sense of uh, patriotism. Patriotism existed in a different form in 1941 than it is here. Now, the war had been present in Europe since about 1935 or 36, and in the uh, in the Pacific, uh, 1933, the Japanese invaded Nanking. So there were other countries had veterans. We were neophytes and. We were ill-equipped. We didn't have a sizable Air Force, Army, Navy, military presence. So we had to build all those things and build it rapidly. But we did and, and Dave Yoho, Dave, you were also, you know, you talk about sort of the, the image that people portray. You decided, though, to work in the engine room of, of tankers. And there's a great line I heard you say, um, Dave, where you talk about, you said to, uh, I think it was one of your commanders, hey, what happens, you know, if we take a hit? Tell us that story, because that's when reality really sunk in with you. Well, what is, you go into military training. We went into a place called Sheepshead Bay. It was run by the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Coast Guards. And you went in through guards and gates, and when you signed on, you were given training, including training with weaponry and swimming. I can't swim. I couldn't swim then. I'm going to go on a (laughs) ship, and I can't swim. But anyhow, they train you and make you appropriately trained sufficiently to build a ship. They built 3,000 new Liberty ships, 3,000. And then they built other ships as well. But if you think of the length of time we're in the war, they were building those things at one a day. They needed the manpower to put on the ships. And there were skeletal crews. They weren't, uh, I mean, they were there to run a ship. Um, I'm going to say, uh, I was on a, a T2 tanker, which is a, a tanker designed to refuel other, other ships. And, and also deliver fuel to other places. And uh, we had a crew, I'm going to say our crew was about 40, 42 uh, men. The um, armed guard, which were the Navy gunners that were on our ship, were about another 22, 24. Now, that same kind of ship, the same size ship, if it was a Navy ship, that ship would have 120 to 140 people on that ship. It's just that uh, we had to work with minimal manpower, and we did it. Now, we go through training. It's all, you know, glamorous, and uh, some of the things that happened were backstrokes, but most of the time forward motion. Now we get on a ship. I come from the inner city. I've never seen the ship. I've never been on a ship, and I get put on the ship. And uh, we, uh, the ship left uh, Chester, Pennsylvania. It started in New York. We came down to Chester, Pennsylvania. Then we went to uh, a place called Carapita, Venezuela, which is on the Atlantic side of Venezuela. Picked up crude oil at a very primitive place. It wasn't a refinery. It was an oil well, an oil uh, oil wells in the uh, inner parts of uh, Venezuela. We took right. that oil to to, Cara, uh, to um, the uh, Netherlands, West Indies. It would be like Curacao or Aruba, those kind of islands. We dropped off the crew, we picked up, we find oil. Then we went through the canal. 
And one of the story I tell is I went through the Panama Canal. You come out on the Pacific side. It's called Cologne. And you come out on that side. And then the trip from that to our first rendezvous in the Pacific was something like 20-some days. 20-some days. It's a vast ocean. And so while we were going out there, they had gunnery practice. And it was maybe the second day after we left Panama. So what happens in the gunnery practice, the guns are up on the deck, and they're a big thing that looks like funnels up on the decks. They're called cowls, C-O-W-L-S. And they suck in the air so that they can force it down to the engine room because there's no ventilation down there. So uh, when those guns went off and we were duty down there, it really magnified the sound in the engine room. So now here you are, a smart, wise alley kid, and suddenly, real, oh, yeah, it's gunfire. What's that? Well, we knew it was going to be practice. But now you got to think, you are 35 to 40 feet below the waterline. So you're really down in the bowels of that ship. So I, I said, I asked an older guy, older guy. He was, an, he was an officer, but he was probably 23 years old. So I asked him, if we take a hit, what's the easiest way to get out? And uh, he looked at me right in the eye and talked to me like he was an old adult and said, kid, look at me right now. I said, kid, if we take a hit, you don't get out. It's first realization. How come we didn't think about it? Well, yeah, I thought about it. I never thought I could get killed. I was going into this. Well, I think that's true of the young people in general. And that's, we won the war with a lot of young people. So there's Sure did. Sure did. Sure did. And Dave, we just have, um, we just have a little bit left. I want to make sure, um, uh, just about 30 seconds, um, the ahead. Congressional Gold Medal, the resolution's been passed by Congress. The president has signed it. Uh, just a little bit ago, they unveiled the designs, but it is actually now it's just a fait accompli. Just real quick, what does that mean to you finally after all these decades? Because there were, you know, it was passed over and didn't get the recognition, and now here it is. You're able to see it and be able to touch a gold medal very soon. Uh, maybe I'm a critical thinker. But I live in an old philosophy in business. If you sell something, don't spend the money until you get it. And we haven't gotten this yet. And we the law was signed in 2020, and, and you had a lot to do with that, so you know the procedure. And it was a Republican president who signed the bill. But the bill was introduced by a Democratic Congress. There were three of them that were really responsible for moving this and another law along. And they moved that along, and there was one woman, a senator, and without going into all the names. But you go through the process of the Congress and the Senate. You go through a labyrinth of steps that you know little about. So I'll like it better when these guys get it. I'm a spokesman. There are only 1,800 of the 250,000 recruits left. I'm their spokesman. I speak for those that aren't here anymore. Uh, and, and I'm talking about 248,200 who are already dead. And now I speak for them. And I say, here, we're the last, the last living group. Now, I don't sound like I'm 93, and I'm not on my deathbed. But that's <laughs> not true of many other veterans. They're old people, and they should get this as soon as possible. Uh, I'm, again, I'm not a cynic. I believe it when we'll get it. But I do thank you for all your efforts to get it moved this far. What else can I say? 
Well, most importantly, what we can say to you, Dave Yoho, is thank you, thank you, thank you for all you've done, not just in World War II, but shining a light on these great American heroes, which you do every day. And I will be standing next to you and clapping loudly when those gold medals come out, hopefully in the very, very near future. Dave Yoho, thank in you. It's main, an honor to have you here on the show. In, in the meantime, anything people can do to know more about us, there's the American Merchant Marine Veterans Association. It's in the corporate headquarters is in Connecticut. We're a dying breed. And we need to support the emotional support as well as the fiscal support of society. And so they can just go on YouTube and you'll be able to find out where we are and what we do. And Rita, thank you again. Been enjoying enjoying having dinner with you tonight and your husband singing and just a wonderful experience. Good luck to you. Thank you. And as we continue now with this Rita Cosby special show, Staff Sergeant Travis Mills is one of only five surviving quadruple amputees to survive the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he has a great New York Times bestselling book out. It is called Tough As They Come. And he's also working on a new one. And uh, Staff Sergeant Travis Mills, great to have you here on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, and good evening. How's everything going for you? You know, it's going great because I'm talking to, I think, just an extraordinary person that I'm so glad all of our great listeners now are getting a chance to hear from and to hear your life story. Um, first, take us through, if you could, Travis, because, you know, you did you recently you did an op-ed talking about your Alive Day um, and what that meant. D- describe what that means to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess, as mentioned before, I'm a quadruple amputee, uh, one of five that was injured in Afghanistan and Iraq to make it. So what they say is the day you get injured, um, since you didn't die, it's, it, they call it your alive day. And um, it's a big thing at Walter Reed Hospital and all these military hospitals, and I think maybe in the civilian world as well. Maybe someone had a bad car accident or something. And, you know, guys and gals celebrate differently. Um, you know, some will go out and drink in, some, you know, are angry and bitter. Other ones are excited. And for me, I'm just like, it's another day. Because when I was injured um, on April 10th of 2012, um, four days after that was actually my birthday. So I was medically sedated on the operating table because I kept trying to tell the nurses to quit touching me. I'm fine as they're trying to get me into surgery. And they medically sedated me. And then four days after that, I woke up for the first time out of that medical sedation on my 25th birthday. So for me, I've always like pushed it off. as like, nope, it's my buddy's birthday. It's just not a normal day. But as the years keep clicking by, like last year, I did a nice thing on Instagram where I broke down. I said, you know, the only thing I can say is thank you. Thank you to the medics, the doctors, the nurses, the medical staff, the support that I've had through all the wonderful people because Without them, I wouldn't be the same person, but without the doctors working on me for 14 hours, I wouldn't have, you know, lived to watch my daughter grow, who was six months old and I was injured, or my son, who's three years old now. He would never be around without, you know, those doctors and medics and and nurses and and the team working on me. So it's really a day of gratitude. And um, as bad as my situation might look on the outside, I'm so thankful because I know that a lot of my buddies didn't make it back home to their families, um, watch their kids grow with their with their spouses and significant others and their family members. So it's really a blessing that I made it, and uh, it's it's all about gratitude now and paying it forward in my life. And I know you're doing so many great things. We're definitely going to talk about the Travis Mills Foundation, which I think is so extraordinary. I want to have you walk through, um, Staff Sergeant, tell me about what happened to you, because it was a bomb. 
um, and it was one of what thirteen buried next to the road. Tell tell us about sort of that that day, which you know. Yeah, absolutely. So um, pretty typical day, and we went on a mission. We got a phone call from the village elder, which is typical. And you're in Afghanistan, right? Yep, in Afghanistan. I'm a third deployment, actually, out of the 82nd Airborne Division. So I had gone for 15 months, one deployment, went for a year, the next deployment. Uh, and this third one was, you know, same as the first two, basically, over in Afghanistan. And we got a phone call, and we went out like normal, and we had a guy that always swept the ground in front of everybody. You know, he had a minesweeper, and he would walk slow. We'd sweep the ground because they planted them everywhere. And he marked it all safe, and he really didn't have any reading. So it's not his fault. It's just a bad you know, unfortunate, um, you know, thing that happened. And we came to a short halt, and I took my backpack off, and I set it on the ground, and it was about 120 pounds all packed out. And when it hit the ground, underneath it was actually a bomb. And when the bomb went off, it took my right arm, right leg off automatically. They never actually, you know, found those pieces of me. And I got thrown to the left side of my face, and when I rolled over, I saw that my right side was gone. Um, my left leg was hanging on just by skin and, and uh, tendon. But my left ankle bone was touching my left thigh. Sorry for everybody listening. I don't mean too gruesome. And then my left wrist was blown up, but I still had used my thumb, index, and middle finger. And when I hit the ground, I rolled over and saw everything. The first thing I did was tell the medics, don't worry about it, because they were on me. My one medic and my platoon sergeant, I said, guys, you're not going to save me. Because I've seen in my line of work, guys go for what I thought was a lot less injury. I thought, don't waste your time. But, you know, it's it's okay. And in my head, I kept seeing, uh, kept seeing the movie, Saving Private Ryan, which might sound silly to a lot of people, but I kept seeing the scene where the medic gets shot in the stomach, and he cries out for his mom, and he begs not to die. But ultimately, he dies. And I was told myself, no matter what happens, I will never be that guy. My men will not think of me in that way. They won't be, you know, saying the last thing I said was, I don't want to die, or I cried for my life. And, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, I was always first in the firefight, last out, led from the front, and exuded confidence. Because that's what a leader does. And when we come back, we will continue to pay tribute to America's heroes. It's the Rita Cosby Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This is the Rita Cosby Show.
And welcome back to this special edition of the Rita Cosby Show. Staff Sergeant Travis Mills is one of only five surviving quadruple amputees to survive the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I also want to get your take on what's happening over in Afghanistan now with all our U.S. troops. A very important story. You were just telling us this amazing story of what you went through. It's unbelievable um, how you survived and talking about sort of the purpose in your life. And you are now doing so much um, with the Travis Mills Foundation. I just want to have you share what you're doing because you've got a 10th anniversary coming up and you've got um, a virtual event, which I love. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a foundation. We started to bring out combat and service connected to injured veterans and show them how to do things adaptively if it was a physical injury, so paralyzation, amputation, spinal cord injuries. And we bought Elizabeth Arden's old estate. She was a cosmetic pioneer. In 1929, she built this place. It was in really bad disrepair. But we went through, we renovated it, and now it's a state-of-the-art, barrier-free facility. We bring out eight families per week and show them how to do things adaptively with their families. And our biggest goal is to tell them, don't live life on the sidelines. Always be active in your community and your family. And to remember to live out my slogan or my motto and the foundation's motto of never give up, never quit. Um, to date, we've helped over 500 families come to Maine where we have this retreat for free. We also have a post-traumatic stress program called Warrior Path. I encourage everybody to check out TravisMillsFoundation.org. And, you know, we're so fortunate that we have the support we do because we're able to still operate and be a very large foundation thriving because people support us and, and give back and champion our mission forward. And we do a Miles for Mills 5K, and we started it when I first got injured, and then we kept continuing it on, and now this is our 10th annual. And thanks to um, instead of hosting it in Augusta, Maine, we're having it virtually. And anybody can sign up. Anybody can get involved. Anybody can run virtually and raise money. And, um, you know, it's a day to remember the fallen, but it's also a time for us to go out there and do good in the world. And my wife and I are just so blessed and thankful that I made it home to my family, that I was able to be around to watch my kids grow. And, um, you know, it's it's awesome that we have the opportunity. So if you guys want to do the virtual 5K, I encourage you to go to TravisMillsFoundation.org and be a part of it. Really thankful and grateful for your participation. And uh, maybe come to Maine, eat some lobster, because I don't like lobster. <laughs> but you have all the lobster you want, and we'll hang out and uh, do some good stuff in the world. Well, and by the way, you are really doing some amazing things. And, and what a like unbelievable um, trooper and fighter, and you just exemplify so much courage, Travis Mills. I have such respect for you and, and what you've endured and how you are inspiring now so many veterans and so many people around the country. I want to ask your thoughts about Afghanistan, too, because President Biden has recently announced that he wants the deadline of September 1st, obviously an important deadline, um, to be the deadline when troops come out of Afghanistan. You have mixed feelings on that. What What are your thoughts as someone who certainly went through so much and injured and, you know, so many of your injuries coming there from Afghanistan? What are your thoughts about that pullout? Is that the right thing to do? Because so many Americans are worried that, you know, all right, you know, the Taliban's going to, you know, fester again. Uh, they're going to grow again. We're not going to have somebody with eyes on them. What is the result of that? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of factors, I'll be honest with you. Um, there's no more eye for eye. Nobody has to avenge my injuries. Nobody has to go over there and think they have to get them back because of what happened to me or anybody else they know. And I truly think you can bring the troops home but leave a force in Bagram or Kandahar. You know, we've really built those places up. They're very strategic. They're something that NATO um, would love to hold on to, you know, having a force to be able to fly all over the place and 
you know, there's things going on right now with Russia and the Ukraine, and that's a great starting point for us to do things. But if we're just being honest with technology, there's people in Las Vegas that are flying drones overseas right now, watching everything, making sure that's all going smooth. So for me, yeah, pull them out, bring them home. And I sat in the Oval Office with President Trump, and he said, Travis, you know, he looked at me and said, Travis, you think we can win the war in Afghanistan? And I said, what answer do you want? He said, I want the real one. I said, no, you're never going to win it because there's no clear lines. There's nobody in a uniform that you're going to beat because they are not a strategic fighting force. Now, we might run around and say, what college is the very bombs and the hit and run tactics? But isn't that how America was formed? Rita Cosby is on. Feisty, fearless, and fair. She's an Emmy-winning journalist from the White House to war zones, telling all sides of the story. This is the Rita Cosby Show. And welcome back to this special and very patriotic Rita Cosby Show. On International Women's Day, I spoke with former POW Jessica Lynch about her harrowing story of survival after being captured during the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Now, almost two decades later, she recounts her dramatic rescue by U.S. Special Ops Forces on April 1st of 2003. Here is our interview. And welcome back. You know, Jessica, you and I have known each other a long time, and and I covered the story of your rescue. I covered it when you were captured. It's just, it's such an honor to talk with you, and and you sound so great. It's, It's just such a beautiful tribute to the human spirit to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's been crazy that it's been 18 years. And, you know, I have met so many amazing people along the way, but definitely meeting you and um, having having been, you know, on your on your show before, it's it's such an honor. So thank you. You know, I think so much. First, take us back to that day. I, I we all saw the headlines. And here it is. It was March 23rd, 2003, um, when this happened. Um, there you are. Um, you're with you're with a convoy. I know you were with your friend Lori to give us sort of the scene of what happened in Iraq. Yeah. So I mean, uh, so we were stationed in Kuwait in um, so March 20th. Uh, we were still in Kuwait. We got the orders. Um, basically, our we were just told to kind of follow the rest of the convoy, the long, large convoy north to Baghdad. Um, and then once we got there, we would be able to kind of continue on with our missions. Um, unfortunately, you know, just kind of day into uh, crossing, crossing over the border, uh, kind of things fell apart for us very quickly. And, um, you know, three days, after crossing, um, you know, we found ourselves in in this uh, town of Anazaria where, uh, you know, instantly we knew things uh, weren't weren't right for us, and um, you know, very quickly uh, we made the decision to turn around, um, get back out of that town. And uh, as we were doing so, 
is when we heard that first kind of dreaded gunshot. Um, And it was followed by the second and, you know, quickly followed by the third. And before we knew it, we were just, um, you know, just ambushed everywhere we looked. I mean, there was um, just bullets flying at us and, and nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, nowhere to to escape. Um, and at this point, uh, I was in the Humvee with uh, my friend, Lori, who was driving, my first sergeant, who was a passenger, and then uh, two other soldiers from a different unit that we had kind of picked up to get out of the way. Um, so there was the five of us in this Humvee. And um, as we were quickly trying to to escape, uh, we were hit by uh, an RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade, on the right side of our vehicle. And uh, when that had happened, Lori lost control of the vehicle, and uh, we ended up slamming into the back of a, a disabled semi. Uh, Lori ended up um, sadly kind of dying of head injuries. And then the three men uh, were all shot and and uh, killed. For me, um, since I was the only one not in a actual seat, um, my uh, body kind of flung forward uh, in between the driver in the passenger seat. So I was kind of sitting in the back in the middle. Um, so when that happened, uh, it broke my back at the fourth and fifth lumbar. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I was knocked unconscious. And, um, at that point I don't remember anything that had occurred. And, uh, I was taken, <laughs> taken to one of Saddam's, uh, uh, palaces uh, stripped of all of my military gear and I uh, was then taken on to the uh, local hospital there in Anazaria and uh, was held captive. You know, it's amazing to hear your story, uh, Jessica Lynch. Everybody, we remember that story so powerfully. All the headlines when you were taken captive and held there for more than a week by Iraqi forces and the dramatic rescue. And here you were when you were going through this story. I'm I'm so gripped when I hear your story because I remember it so well covering it. I was, you know, on Fox News and just saying a prayer for you as the whole country was. You were 19 years old. Did you think, maybe I'm not going to make this? Yeah. I mean, every day uh, in captivity, you know, I, one, being alone, it's, it obviously scared me because I um, could not remember what had happened. Um, so I didn't know where my comrades were. I didn't, uh, I couldn't, I guess, comprehend um, what had caused me to be surrounded by these Iraqi men. Um, so, I mean, there was just a lot of things that, you know, I just could not um, kind of come to terms with uh, about how I got there and, and what had occurred. And, I mean, obviously, I mean, being 19, I was only a year into my military career. So, uh, you know, I, I was very young and, and didn't obviously um, had never been 
had never been deployed before. So that was my first deployment. Oh, my goodness. I mean, there was a lot of things that just, you know, I couldn't kind of wrap my head around. But definitely being young, I, I, you know, as female, I was was scared because I was um, surrounded by these Iraqi men during my captivity. So there was a lot of things that, um, yeah, I mean, I was just... If for the for the lack of better words, yeah, I, w- I was definitely definitely scared and just kind of, you know, running through the motions of every day, but um, wanting wanting to be home very badly. Yeah, and, and home wanted you badly too. And there were so many. There were yellow <laughs> ribbons literally tied, you know, in your town there in in West Virginia, but all over the country praying for you. Here it is. Okay, so a week of this horror goes by. Um, and then suddenly, today, 18 years ago today, um, suddenly U.S. Special Operation Forces get into that hospital where you're being held. Um, tell us about that moment. Did you realize what was happening when, you know, does it feel like yesterday? Because I'm sure you remember it so vividly. I do, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy that that I remember it like it was yesterday, but they always say there's big milestones in your life. You definitely remember. So, um, yeah, I had no idea what was happening though. Um, it was, it was late at night and I remember them, um, having me, uh, locked up in this, um, I mean, it was a hospital room, but it was kind of much smaller than what you think of, you know, ours around here. It was, it was a lot smaller. Um, but uh, yeah, there was two Iraqi men that was inside that room with me, and at first I heard the helicopters, and I could hear, you know, the heavy kind of machinery, um, you know, your Humvees, your larger trucks, kind of rolling through your tanks. And uh, my first, I guess, initial thought was that uh, they do not know that I'm in this building. And that, you know, that they were going to seize it or that they were going to bomb it in some manner, not knowing that I was in there. So, of course, I was scared. Um, And then, of course, I could then hear bombs kind of going off in the background, kind of as that diversion tactic. Uh, But, yeah, the the closer that things got, the louder they were getting. Um, And I could hear definitely the helicopters as they were approaching and then men. And at first, uh, you know, I could hear that, that they were speaking in English, but it still scared me because I kept hearing them yell out my name, you know, where is private lunch? And, uh, yeah. And you're thinking maybe they're, they're not here to come get me, you know, to save me. Who knows who they are? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I was, I was very leery of, of what was happening. Um, but I think just, for me, the biggest thing was just all the noise and the chaos that was happening. And, um, you know, I just, <laughs> I just couldn't, <laughs> oh, I just, oh, it was just so much happening that, you know, it was just, it was chaos. Um, and I, I think just my nerves and, you know, just being scared <laughs> really kind of amplified, you know, everything that had uh, taken place that night. Um, but when they um, opened the door and they you know, kind of 
a bunch of them came inside of the room that was standing there. And, um, but I remember at one point, um, one of the, uh, Rangers, he pulled off the American flag off of his uniform and he placed it in my hand. And he told me that, uh, they were Americans and they were there to take me home. And that was kind of when everything wow. <laughs> kind of died down for me. Like I, <laughs> at that point, I finally felt like, okay, this is, this is true. And this is, this is real and this is happening. And, and I finally get to go home. Um, but I remember just looking, looking at him and, and saying, yeah, I'm an American soldier too. Well, I'm telling you, it must have just been so amazing, first of all, to have heard those words, you know, I'm an American soldier, and you saying, I'm an American soldier, too. And for you to make it through that, I remember covering it. I remember all the details. And um, it's just such an honor to have you here on the show and to talk with you. Literally, here it is 18 years later. We all remember it, and we just salute you and your service And it is such a beautiful, but also such an important reminder of the sacrifice of our troops and our great, brave men and women. And and your sacrifice in particular, I think, just epitomizes it. And uh, I I treasure you and your friendship, and and we treasure you in America. You're really just a great American hero, my friend. Oh, thank you. Yeah, definitely. I think one of my main messages is to to just never forget... um, you know, the ones that that did not make it home, the ones who were there rescuing, um, not only me, but, you know, all of our troops that, that find themselves in, in harm's way. So definitely um, support, continue to pray for, for our troops that we have stationed in every corner of the world. So um, I'm like everybody else. I'm very patriotic and and fully support our our military. And as we continue now with this Rita Cosby special show, let's listen to my interview with Merchant Marine veteran and also the inspiration for the very famous movie Captain Phillips, Richard Phillips. I know the Navy SEALs, they took that those unbelievable shots at the pilots. Here's the boat that they were on was going up and down. I mean, talk about the incredible accuracy of our Navy SEALs, but they had to take action um, because I know Captain Phillips and everybody were talking to the real life Captain Phillips, who the incredible movie was based on his harrowing ordeal, as we're hearing firsthand from Richard Phillips. And, you know, Captain, when you went through this, how concerned were you that you were going to die? And had they not taken that shot, who knows what would have happened to you? Uh, I really didn't know by Saturday afternoon after two and a half, three days in the lifeboat, I could see that they, that they were committed and they were determined. As, as much as I, we, I was able to get that point across to them as they were able to get across for me. Uh, but no, by after Saturday, I, I didn't see a good ending coming, but you know, uh, when in tough times, you have to persevere, you can't quit. You have to keep going and, and do the best, uh, the, the best thing you can do. And, that, and that's all I did. It, it's some, uh, uh, you know, so some, my, my mother used to tell me, uh, help me get through this. And she, she used to tell me, uh, when I was young, this too shall pass. Uh, and so I just, uh, kept in my head, I'm going to do the best I can do the best job I can going to end one way or the other, but it's not going to be a, 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 a bad shot on me. Uh, I'm going to do the best I can to, to get out of the situation. 
And when we come back, we will continue to pay tribute to America's heroes. You're listening to The Rita Cosby Show. This is The Rita Cosby Show. And welcome back to this special edition of The Rita Cosby Show. Staff Sergeant Travis Mills is one of only five surviving quadruple amputees to survive the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I also want to get your take on what's happening over in Afghanistan now with all our U.S. troops. A very important story. You were just telling us this amazing story of what you went through. It's unbelievable um, how you survived and talking about sort of the purpose in your life. And you are now doing so much um, with the Travis Mills Foundation. I just want to have you share what you're doing because you've got a 10th anniversary coming up and you've got um, a virtual event, which I love. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a foundation. We started to bring out combat and service connections injured veterans and show them how to do things adaptively if it was a physical injury. So paralyzation, amputation, spinal cord injuries. And we bought Elizabeth Arden's old estate. She was a cosmetic pioneer. In 1929, she built this place. It was in really bad disrepair. But we went through, we renovated it, and now it's a state-of-the-art, barrier-free facility. We bring out eight families per week and show them how to do things adaptively with their families. And our biggest goal is to tell them, don't live life on the sidelines. Always be active in your community and your family. And to remember to live out my slogan or my motto and the foundation's motto of never give up, never quit. Um, to date, we've helped over 500 families come to Maine where we have this retreat for free. We also have a post-traumatic stress program called Warrior Path. I encourage everybody to check out TravisMillsFoundation.org. And, you know, we're so fortunate that we have the support we do because we're able to still operate and be a very large foundation thriving because people support us and, and give back and champion our mission forward. And we do a Miles for Mills 5K. And we started it when I first got injured, and then we kept continuing it on. And now this is our 10th annual. And thanks to um, instead of hosting it in Augusta, Maine, we're having it virtually. And anybody can sign up. Anybody can get involved. Anybody can run virtually and raise money. And, um, you know, it's a day to remember the fallen, but it's also a time for us to go out there and do good in the world. And my wife and I are just so blessed and thankful that I made it home to my family, that I was able to be around to watch my kids grow. And, um, you know, it's it's awesome that we have the opportunity. So if you guys want to do the virtual 5K, I encourage you to go to TravisMillsFoundation.org and be a part of it. Really thankful and grateful for your participation. And uh, maybe come to Maine, eat some lobster, because I don't like lobster. <laughs> but you have all the lobster you want, and we'll hang out and uh, do some good stuff in the world. Well, and by the way, you are really doing some amazing things. And, and what a like unbelievable um, trooper and fighter, and you just exemplify so much courage, Travis Mills. I have such respect for you and, and what you've endured and how you are inspiring now so many veterans and so many people around the country. I want to ask your thoughts about Afghanistan, too, because President Biden has recently announced that he wants the deadline of September 1st, obviously an important deadline, um, to be the deadline when troops come out of Afghanistan. You have mixed feelings on that. What What are your thoughts as someone who certainly went through so much and injured and, you know, so many of your injuries coming there from Afghanistan? What are your thoughts about that pullout? Is that the right thing to do? Because so many Americans are worried that, you know, all right, you know, the Taliban's going to, you know, fester again. Uh, they're going to grow again. We're not going to have somebody with eyes on them. What is the result of that? 
Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of factors, I'll be honest with you. Um, there's no more eye for eye. Nobody has to avenge my injuries. Nobody has to go over there and think they have to get them back because of what happened to me or anybody else that they know. And I truly think you can bring the troops home but leave a force in Bagram or Kandahar. You know, we've really built those places up. They're very strategic. They're something that NATO um, would love to hold on to, you know, having a force to be able to fly all over the place. And, you know, there's things going on right now with Russia and Ukraine, and that's a great starting point for us to do things. But if we're just being honest with technology, there's people in Las Vegas that are flying drones overseas right now, watching everything, making sure that's all going smooth. So for me, yeah, pull them out, bring them home. And I sat in the Oval Office with President Trump, and he said, Travis, you know, he looked at me and said, Travis, you think we can win the war in Afghanistan? And I said, what answer do you want? He said, I want the real one. I said, no, you're never going to win it because there's no clear lines. There's no buddy in a uniform that you're going to beat because they are not a strategic fighting force. Now, we might run around and say, what cowards is the bury bombs and the hit and run tactics? But isn't that how America was formed? You're listening to The Rita Cosby Show. Cosby is on. The Rita Cosby Show presents Support Our Heroes. And in tonight's Support Our Heroes segment, a very powerful story coming out of Montana, where a St. Regis man was honored with the Bronze Star for his bravery during the Vietnam War. And it happened yesterday when he got the honor. And it dates back to October 7th, 1967. It's a day that Ed Fontaine will remember for the rest of his life. When that fire opened up, I thought, oh, suicide. We just got told to go up on a hill. It was a hill that exposed him and his unit to the enemies of the Vietnam War. And at 18 years old, the machine gunner in the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division was faced with a very difficult choice. And he knew what my bosses were saying to them. He said, I'll go if you go. And we both know what that meant. I will die if you die. As he was 20 meters away from the enemy, he shot and all suddenly went quiet on the front, buying his unit valuable time to go on fighting the war. And that moment was an enormous turning point and success. It was Fontaine's bravery over 50 years ago that awarded him six military honors, including a Purple Heart and now the Bronze Star for his heroism. The Bronze Star is given to those who show heroic service in a combat zone. And Fontaine says he could not have done it without the grace of God, describing his actions that day as purely a miracle. What a powerful, powerful story and a great reminder of the incredible heroes living among us. Well, today, can you hear the cheering from Johnny Depp's legal team? It was an enormous case. Everybody's been watching the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. At first, I was like, oh, I'm not going to watch it. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they're talking about these things. I didn't know who was crazier than the next. I thought his movies were wild. I thought her movies were wild. Now their real lives were wilder than even the movies. It was wild to watch. And, of course, the big verdict came down just a few hours ago. Take a listen. Do you find that Mr. Depp has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, yes. Has Mr. Depp proven by a greater weight of the evidence that question, 
The statement was made or published by Ms. Hurd. Answer, yes. The question, the statement was about Mr. Depp. Answer, yes. Question, the statement was false. Answer, yes. Question, the statement has a defamatory implication about Mr. Depp. Answer, yes. Question, the, de the defamatory implication was designed and intended by Ms. Hurd. Answer, yes. Question, due to circumstances surrounding the publication of the statement, it conveyed a defamatory impl implication to someone who saw it other than Mr. Depp. Answer, yes. Do you find that Mr. Depp has proven by clear and convincing evidence that Ms. Hurd acted with actual malice? Answer, yes. It was a damning verdict for Amber Hurd and certainly a big win for Johnny Depp. And this is how Judge Jeanine Pirro on Fox News described the verdict. Whenever there is someone like an Amber Heard, and I felt this right from the beginning, although I held back on it, she was not saying the truth. What she said didn't ring true. It didn't make sense. And yet she fashioned herself this woman who was crusading on behalf of other women who were battered. I know women who were battered. I've seen women who were battered. Amber Heard was not that person. She was the batterer. And she tried to use this to her benefit. And unfortunately, this will hurt battered women coming forward behind her. And Judge Jeanine said that Amber Heard felt the wrath of justice. Today, she felt the wrath of the truth finders, the wrath of the system of justice, the civil system. It said you cannot charge someone or claim that someone is an abuser. So what does this mean for the movie star's future? What does it mean for the Me Too movement? Boy, there are lots of questions because Johnny Depp was awarded 15 million bucks by the jury. Amber Heard, because there was a separate defamation suit, was awarded $2 million for a statement that his attorney slash agent made. Um, but overall, a huge win for the acting superstar, Johnny Depp. And where do we go from here? And what did you make of the verdict, everybody? Was it justice served? Well, joining us now to talk about the entertainment implications of it all is the great entertainment reporter, Bill McCuddy. He's a contributing editor at Schnapps Media, goldderby.com, and the New York Post. He also co-hosts the podcast, The Accutron Show, and he's a critic on the PBS show, Talking Pictures with Neil Rosen. Is there anything he can he doesn't do? My gosh, he's got 5,000 jobs, and he does a great job at all of them. And Bill McCuddy, it's great to have you here on the show. Thanks, Rita. My bio sounds as loud as that verdict today. Yeah, yeah. It's long. It was, but it's good. It's a good. And by the way, it was a good verdict for Johnny Depp. What, what was yeah, your reaction? He was already, uh, partying. He wasn't even there. He was in London uh, performing with Jeff Beck, and uh, that was a little strange that uh, that he didn't feel that he needed to be there. Uh, I, I don't know whether he thought he was going to win or lose, but I. This is a guy who hasn't really cared about what America thinks about him through this whole process. And they both have been, as you said, the train wreck that everyone has slowed down to look at. And and when we say that this was a win, we're still talking about two pretty reprehensible people when we learned about what went on uh, in their private lives. So, uh, yeah, it's a win. 
in, but it's it, basically the jury said he's the cream of the crap. By the way, that's a good line. Um, you know, you know, Bill, um, the fact you're right that he wasn't there. Part of me thought even if he didn't get a dollar from the deal, that a lot of what he was doing was really the court of public opinion because he felt that he lost a lot of money, um, that his reputation was damaged. Obviously, the jury agreed with him based on their decision. But it was more of just like he wanted to come out and clear the air and tell his side of the event. And even if uh, he only got $5, I think he might have been happy. Well, I think that's exactly what he wanted, especially since in the U.K. two years ago, this didn't go his way. A judge there said that there was evidence that Amber Heard had been abused physically. And so he felt like that was the downward spiral that he had to try and pull out of. And he got to do it. He got to sit there. Uh, We all watched for a couple of weeks. Everyone decided that her tears were false and that he was being honest. He was kind of good-naturedly cajoling the the prosecutor and and reading what they said and then saying, yes, that is what I said, or no, that is no matter how horrific the statement. So I think we saw some of the best acting out of him that we've seen and out of her, or an an attempted acting out of her. And uh, I just don't know what is going to happen to either one of them. I'll tell you something kind of interesting is that all through this process, there was a media company that had been calling people and polling them about what they thought. And most Americans, something like 86%, think he'll have a career after this. Uh, they thought like 12% thought she was going to have a, a career moving forward. So the thing to remember is that, yes, he was maybe going to be in one more Pirates of the Caribbean and a couple of other things. But for the most part, uh, the movies he's made in the last five years have been kind of stinkers and very small budget and didn't really make a lot of money. So this enthusiasm for his career, let's bring back Jack Sparrow. I'm not sure they want Jack Sparrow in, in Hollywood. You know, although he contends that he was – by the way, I ended up going. I met Johnny Depp. I was actually on the red carpet. I went to the premiere of one of the Pirates of Caribbean, and I looked on like one side of me was Orlando Bloom, and the other side was Johnny Depp. Uh, so, so I was I I was in between. The, I'm like, oh God, the two guys are right here. I mean, who knows? Maybe well, was she was the, maybe the she Oscars. was there. You I don't know. know. <laughs> I, I was there as many times as as you. And, and by the I, way, I think you have many. me beat because you've been there many a time, my friend. Well, I, but I, I, you know, he was affable and and liked being a star and wore it well. Uh, the problem is the opioids and drinking and everything else that happened to him. And even his own agent testified, which is pretty amazing, at this uh, at this procedure that he was kind of washed up. And, of course, they were using that, they were turning that to say that he wouldn't have been if this hadn't all happened, she had defamed him. But, uh, you know, the, the future is very, very questionable for a 58-year-old guy who can't play the young, dashing, nightmare on Elm Street uh, kind of a, Part anymore. Uh, he's been using a lot of prosthetics and some of the things that he's done uh, over the last few years, and he's trying to move into like a character actor. Well, that's not the big money, uh, the big payday uh, that he needs to sustain the lifestyle that he's come up with. So uh, he's got to he's got to straighten out his act. He, he can't take a victory lap. Everyone in the media is calling this a win for him. The truth is, I don't think anybody won today. I, I wished that the decision had been uh, 
in both of their favors and that each owed the other a dollar, and maybe nothing like this would ever go in front of a jury again and certainly not be on television. But what happened happened, and so now we have to say, well, what's what's the future look like for either one of them? And I'm not sure that anyone in Hollywood, even though they've said that he won, is going to bank him, give him 20 or $30 million to be in a movie again. Although there may be the curiosity now, after all this, too, to, to see now, him in... one film, yeah. but I, I'm not sure that that'll make a, a, a career. Now, Hollywood loves a comeback, and that's true for Amber Heard as well. Uh, but I think she's got a much, much more difficult road to tow. I do, too. I do, too. Bill McCuddy, so great to have you on and get your awesome perspective. Uh, the great entertainment reporter, so Thank awesome you. to have you with us, my friend. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, everybody. What do you think? You just heard uh, Bill McCuddy's take. What did you think of the verdict? Um, I actually thought uh, going in his favor was the right way. Um, I didn't find her as convincing. I thought I would find her more convincing when she got to the stand. Um, And it was a really high bar, actually, for him to be able to win. But obviously the jury felt that way, and it was a resounding win, I think, in many, many ways. I mean, she got some money, but very, very small amount. But I thought it might even be like what Bill was saying at one point, maybe like both were going to get the same amount, so it would be an even wash, maybe as a message. But they clearly, overwhelmingly, went in favor of Johnny Depp. And everybody has been watching this from beginning to end. Where does it go from here? And was that a just verdict? What are your thoughts on that? We're also, of course, continuing with the topic of what we were talking about before, also the school shooting as well in Texas, and the mixed messages coming out of there. 1-800-848-9222. The 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to David in Los Angeles on line one. David, your thoughts? I like Bill McCuddy. I think he was a little bit off in his assessment. This was the biggest pop culture event since the O.J. Simpson trial. Johnny Depp is now the biggest star in the world now after this. Uh, I'm surprised at the overwhelming support. About 98 percent, when you look at polls, believe Johnny Depp. Amber Heard definitely hurt the Me Too movement. She's done for life. She's going to need security everywhere she goes probably the most hated person in America. Johnny Depp is going to be in Beetlejuice 2 with Michael Keaton. Um, Sure, he's not young anymore and won't be doing Pirates of the Caribbean. But again, I didn't realize how beloved Johnny Depp was. Now, I'm telling you, he's the biggest star in the world. You know, by the way, David, I agree with you in that respect. I actually think he's extremely bankable right now because I think right now, whoever gets him next will probably pay a lot of money. Um, there's a lot of different parts. There's different ages also for people in Hollywood. It's, you know, it's the reality. The guys seem to be able to have a longer career in Hollywood, and he doesn't look – he is up there as Bill for Hollywood age, but still looks very good. And I think he's super bankable right now. I think he's going to have a lot of offers, and I agree with you that I think Amber Heard is going to have trouble getting stuff. I think the jury clearly didn't buy. I mean, when you listen to the verdict, too, I was watching it live as it happened. I was like, oh, my gosh. And it was like they were thoughtful. It was like, you know, did she prove this? No. Did she prove this? No. Did she prove that? You know, I mean, there were a lot of things they had to go through. They clearly didn't believe her. They thought she was lying on the stand. I mean, they clearly thought it was a bunch of hogwash. 
Yeah, I'm very surprised. Nobody seemed to believe a thing she said. She made a lot of allegations. I think Johnny Depp's career could take that of a Robert De Niro, maybe do some darker roles and uh, be like the Robert De Niro. He did the Meet the Parents type of movie. I could see him taking that type of role. But clearly, I agree with Judge Deneen, this hurt the Me Too movement. Amber Heard thought that she was going to be the queen of Me Too, and it was going to help her career, and, you know, Johnny Depp divorced her, and she was going to pay him back and show him it totally backfired. But I like to say that this doesn't mean women shouldn't be believed. It just means that Amber Heard's a despicable person who's going to be paying for the rest of her life. Well, and and I'm glad you said, uh, David, that it doesn't mean women can't be believed, because I don't want legitimate cases. And of course, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know what's legitimate, but the jury didn't find her legitimate. Um, but you don't want it to dissuade other people who really do have legitimate cases or cases uh, that a jury would believe or where the evidence is so clear or whatever that, you know, it would have helped in this case for her case. But you don't want other people, whether it's men or women, not to come forward because that's an important message. And and when I hear people saying, oh, gosh, maybe it's scaring other people, that would really, really be a shame if that is the repercussions from this. Um, you know, that would be a really, really sad thing if it holds other people back because that is an important topic. And uh, But it was like, as Bill was saying, it was like a train wreck. Nobody could get their eyes off. It was like, oh, my God. At first, I remember thinking – to myself, David, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to watch it or whatever, you know. And then I was like, I can't. When I was listening to him talking even about his childhood and then some of their fights were like, oh, my God. It was like they were just one was crazier than the next. I realized my life was a little boring compared to theirs. I was like, wow, I guess I'm I'm a prude compared to that one. Whoa. It was like it was wild. It was wild, wild, wild. We're going to continue with your calls, everybody, after the break. And we're also talking about what happened in Texas, still so many mixed messages, and the chief of police there doesn't want to answer questions when CNN confronts him. There's a lot of questions, and the families of all deserve answers. We're going to continue with your calls on that after the break. You're listening to The Rita Cosby Show. It's The Rita Cosby Show. And we are talking about so many unanswered questions and so many inconsistencies about the Texas school shooting because, boy, was it horrific. And, boy, do the family members who lost loved ones deserve answers. And tonight, it's like, who's on first? Who's on second? They can't keep their story straight. I have never seen a case where law enforcement has provided such inaccurate information First saying there was a resource officer who had a shootout. Then there wasn't. The door was propped open. That's how he got in. Turns out the door wasn't propped open. I mean, there are just so many stories here that just don't make any sense. And meantime, the guy who was the commander was confronted by a CNN crew today, and he basically was dodging and weaving and wouldn't answer any questions. And the Texas DPS says he's not answering any questions to their investigators either. That was the local Uvalde police chief who apparently made the call not to go in and breach the school and charge the shooter. That's what you got to do. 
I mean, there it is. It is disgusting, and families deserve answers. And one of the senators down there, uh, a local senator, said that he has asked the Texas DPS to give answers, and he is hoping that by Friday he'll at least get an accounting of which units were on the scene, when did they come, when did they arrive, when did they get into the school. That should be a fairly easy thing to get an answer from. And he says right now he has still not gotten answers to those questions. And he's asked to get a full accounting, if he can, by later this week. So hopefully there will be some answers later this week, at least on some aspects. But my goodness, I have never seen such a chaotic investigation and such a poor performance by law enforcement at a time that every second counted. And the question is, why are we getting still so many mixed messages? It doesn't make any sense. It does not make any sense. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Larry on line seven. Larry, your thoughts. Yeah, okay. Okay, so so continue what I said, what I was saying last night, uh, which you disagreed with. I said, uh, we have to present law enforcement with a different set of scenario. And this is because I believe you are overestimating the capabilities of law enforcement. This is not the military. Let me distinguish. The military, when people sign into the military, okay, first of all, the average soldier, elite units are picked for certain missions in the military. The average soldier does not necessarily go into uh, a dangerous situation such as in the school. But be that as it may, the average soldier is given a, 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 a training which says, that you're going into the military for short term, okay, and you may have to say, you may have to risk your life because we are at war, or this is very you know uh, important mission for our country. So but what's your these, point, Larry? I hear you. The people in the police, this this is employment. This is lifetime employment. They want to live for a lifetime and get a pension and retire like everybody else. Rita. But that, but Larry, you're that's Larry, Larry. Them. No, no, I'm actually not because law enforcement. I can't think of anybody in law enforcement, and I've talked to, you know, probably a couple hundred since the shooting happened. Every single one of them has said that they would have charged because they said that that's what they were trained to do. It's like a house fire. Like if you if there's a fire and a firefighter gets called, you know, they may not want to go into the burning house. But guess what? That's what they're hired to do. They go in the house. You're making it sound like police you know, uh, that they're afraid that I do think there was maybe some fear because we did her early on in the Texas DPS. And of course, it's a scary situation. I mean, I, I absolutely understand that is a risky situation. But by most law enforcement account that and you've heard it everywhere, not just people I've talked to, but everywhere consistently have said they should have gone in and charged because if they're not going to stop the shooter, who is? What, is a kid in the school going to trip them or do something like that? I mean, come on. I mean, somebody has to take control, and that's what they're hired to do. You make it sound like they're sitting back and knitting sweaters, Larry. And I think predominantly law enforcement, 99.99%, they're amazing people. They're heroes. And I bet you there were a lot of people that probably wanted to go in and were told, do not go by the superior on the ground who made the wrong call. And that superior should absolutely be punished. But I think predominantly people get into law enforcement. They want to make a difference. They want to help. They wanted, I'm sure, to help those kids inside. They try to do their best. They also did need better equipment. 
so they could go in there because you don't want it to be a suicide mission. But I bet that 99% of them wanted to go in and wanted to charge and wanted to save those kids. And I hope the families get the truth because they deserve it. We need answers. The public does. But those families deserve it more than anyone.